to open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 11. We are continuing a sermon study in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 11, page 182 in the Pew Bible. Just a reminder, this Tuesday night is our church's quarterly business meeting, quarterly members meeting. So if you're a member of the church, uh, we hope to see you there as we gather as a congregational church to uh, work together to make decisions about our church's future. Also, uh, next Sunday, Siding Sunday, we have our candidate for associate pastor here, uh, Godwin Safianathan, will be here with us, and we can't wait to introduce you to him and let you uh, meet this guy that we've got to meet and, and uh, see if, if you sense God leading the whole church in, in this direction as well. So you get a chance to meet him, kick the tires, that sort of thing. He's going to be um, uh, for a question and answer session before this service down in Fellowship Hall at 10 o'clock. And then next Sunday night, uh, it's all next Sunday. And then at 6.30 next week as well in the evening on Sunday. So you'll have chances to talk to him. And, and he'll be in the services too, uh, preaching God's Word. So. Well, with that said, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 11. I'm going to read the entirety of Deuteronomy 11. It takes like four and a half minutes. I timed it. Kind of a long chapter. But here's what I want you to do to kind of listen more effectively as I read it. I, there's a lot in this chapter. There's a lot that could be said about it. You could preach several sermons on this chapter 11. But, but there's two kind of overriding themes or trends or messages running throughout this chapter. And, and one is a command that Moses gives Israel again and again and again. And the second sort of major theme are consequences from that command. Consequences if they keep the command. Consequences if they don't keep the command. So I'm going to read this whole chapter. And I just want you to kind of put your antenna up and listen for uh, commands and consequences. All right. So let's start in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. I'll read the chapter. Love the Lord your God and keep His requirements, His decrees, His laws, and His commands always. Remember today that your children... We're not the ones who saw and experienced the discipline of the Lord your God. His majesty, His mighty hand, His outstretched arm. The signs He performed and the things He did in the heart of Egypt. Both to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to His whole country. What He did to the Egyptian army, to its horses and chariots. How He overwhelmed them with the waters of the Red Sea as they were pursuing you. And how the Lord brought lasting ruin on them. It was not your children who saw what he did for you in the desert until you arrived at this place, and what he did to Dothan and Abiram, sons of Eliab the Reubenite, when the earth opened its mouth right in the middle of all Israel and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that belonged to them. But it was your own eyes that saw all these great things the Lord has done. Observe, therefore, all the commands I'm giving you today so that you may have the strength to go in and take over the land that you're crossing the Jordan to possess. And so that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers to give to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. The land you're entering to take over is not like the land of Egypt from which you've come where you planted your seed and irrigated it by foot as in a vegetable garden. But the land you're crossing the Jordan to take possession of is a land of mountains and valleys that drinks rain from heavens. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. His eye, the eyes of the Lord your God are continually on it from the beginning of the year to its end. So, if 
you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain, new wine, and oil. I will provide grass in the fields for your cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Be careful or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and He will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates so that your days and the days of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give to your forefathers, as many as the days that the heavens are above the earth. If you you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to hold fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. Every place where you set your foot will be yours. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the Euphrates to the Western Sea. No man will be able to stand against you. The Lord your God, as He promised you, will put the terror and fear of you on the whole land wherever you go. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and... A curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands, the Lord your God, that I am giving you today. The curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God from the way I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you're entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. As you know, these mountains are across the Jordan, west of the road toward the setting sun, near the great trees of Morah and the territory of the Canaanites living in the Arabah in the vicinity of Gilgal. You are about to cross the Jordan to enter the take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you. When you've taken it over and are living there, be sure that you obey all the decrees and laws I'm setting before you today. So did you pick it up? Did you see it? Could you, could you kind of maybe see it every once in a while? It, you know, it's a very kind of, for those of you who are computer programmers and computer guys, you'll totally dig this. It's, it's a very if-then kind of thing. If X, then Y. If you obey, then this. If you don't obey, then that. And that, that's kind of the structure of this chapter. Notice again and again the, the command. So there's a command and there's a consequence. The command is perfectly summarized in verse 1 of chapter 11 where he says, love the Lord your God and keep His requirements. I mean, there it is. You might say that's the whole message of the book of Deuteronomy. You want to summarize the book of Deuteronomy in one sentence? It's love God and keep His commandments. This is what Moses is urging the Israelites over and over. Love God. And as a result of that internal heart love of God, keep His commandments. Notice it again and again. Verse 8. Observe, therefore, all the commands I am giving you today. Verse 13, if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today, which is what? To love the Lord your God and serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
So there you have it again. Obedience coming from love. Uh, keeping God's commandments coming out of a desire to, to, to honor God that comes from the heart. So that biblical religion is really about heart. It's about the heart-loving God that produces obedience in the life. You know, I, we often think of love and the heart today as something that's kind of opposed to rules and laws. And yet here they seem to be perfectly married. You know, we tend to think if you love someone, you let them go. If you love someone, you give them space. If you love someone, you don't impose anything on them. If you love someone, you give them all the room to be who they will be. Because to do otherwise would be to restrict and be not loving. You know, what, what an upside down understanding of love. Love is a commitment. When you love someone, it means you commit to them. And when two people commit to each other, it's actually a restricting kind of experience in some ways. In some ways, it's a wonderful freedom to love somebody because you're free to to have a relationship with them that you didn't have before. But there's restrictions to that relationship. By saying yes to one person, you're saying no to other things. And so to come into a relationship with God and to love Him is, is to come underneath His kingship and His rule. So to love God is resulting in keeping His commandments. And we see this theme over and over again. So out of the heart comes love, and that love results in obedience. Or just again to show you, look at verse 22. If you carefully observe all these commands I'm giving you to follow, which is to love the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, and to hold fast to Him. So the command that God has for us is love. He wants us to love Him from the heart. That may be kind of a newsflash to some of us. Because I think some of us, uh, a lot of us perhaps, were raised with some kind of religious tradition. You're raised in a religious background, maybe uh, Sunday school, maybe CCD, maybe synagogue school. You, you had a religious training. But what you took out of that religious training was, do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Keep these rules. Um, observe these holy days. Make sure you do this at this age and that at that age. And, you know, if you do that, it's, it's pretty good. You know, hopefully you'll have a good life. And, and so it was, it was very much kind of a checklist. And that's what you got out of religion. And so, so what's really developed for you is it's kind of like, well, I, I should probably do the religion thing occasionally just to kind of, you know, cover that base. I don't want to, like, not cover that base because who knows what will happen. And then, and then I do that and then I have my normal life. This is real life. These are all the things I do. And occasionally I, I leave real life to go to this kind of random religion thing, just in case. It's a good thing, it's not bad, but, but they're kind of separated. So it might be a newsflash for us to hear that biblical religion is fundamentally a loving relationship with God. That it's more like being married than a boring thing you go to once a year. It's about loving God and Him loving you and being committed to each other. That, that biblical Christianity and biblical religion starts in the heart and then moves out into the life. What a, a radically different kind of concept. And so this is the command. Love God. Keep His commandments. And then there's the consequence. right? So you have the commands in Deuteronomy. And you have the consequences in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And the consequences uh, can basically be summed up by those two words in verse 26. If you look at verse 26... Moses says, see, I'm setting before you today, what? A blessing and a curse. If you obey, there's a blessing. If you disobey, there's a curse. 
And so that's, it's really a pretty simple structure to the, to the whole Old Testament covenant. It has, it has a rather elegant, simple, easy to understand structure. Obey blessing, disobey curse. You know, it's almost uh, uh, just wonderfully binary and simple to understand. In fact, it's kind of interesting, um, as archaeologists have uh, dug around in the dirt in uh, the land of Cana and you know, that part of the world, they've uncovered ancient covenant treaties that were made in the same time period as Deuteronomy was written, in the mid-second uh, millennium B.C. And as they found these, these covenant treaties, they found a lot of similarities with Deuteronomy. That, that, you know, in these covenant treaties they found in the ancient world, there'd be a, a big king and a little king, and they'd enter a covenant with each other where the big king would take care of the little king and guard him and watch over him, and the little king would obey the big king, so there'd be rules to keep and laws and a, a relationship between them. And then, in these covenant treaties, there's always, the last section of the document is, blessings and curses. If you do it, great, these are the blessings. If you don't, these are the curses. So here's God entering into a very kind of covenant, blessings and curses sort of relationship with the people of Israel. Just look at Deuteronomy 11 again. Let me just very quickly, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but just show you the four major blessings and curses that you see hinted at here in Deuteronomy 11. There's sort of four blocks of blessings and curses. The first one is in verses 2 to 7, where God reminds them that you know God can judge. He's done it in the past. You know, verses 2 to 7, He reminds them about how He punished the Egyptians by bringing them into the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea closed over the Egyptians. And then He reminds them of how a little bit later in verse 6, in Israel's history, there were some Israelites who were rebellious, and so what did God do? Like the Red Sea, He opened the earth. And these rebellious Israelites fell in and then it closed over them. So you have this kind of wonderful uh, parallelism there of God's judgment on the Egyptians, God's judgment on these rebellious Israelites. And what's the point? The point is, God is real. And He judges. God does implement curses. This is not just words in a book that we're reading. God is real. You know, there's the newsflash. If you don't take anything else away this morning, take away this. God is real. And He really acts. And He really will judge the world. And it doesn't matter whether we believe it or not. You know? If we had a big American Idol moment where we all got to text in our vote on whether or not God was real, and the whole world texted in unanimously, God isn't real and He won't judge us, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't delay. He wouldn't go, oh goodness, I don't exist, and put, you know, disappear in a puff of unbelief. And judgment wouldn't be delayed. He is God. And that's the whole point of verses 2-7. to seven. Verse 7, it was your own eyes that saw this. You Israelites know better than anyone on the face of the earth that God is real and that He does bring curses. And when He curses, it's death. And when He blesses, it's life. Or look at the second block of curses and verses, uh, blessings and curses. It's chapter uh, 11, verses 8 to 12. And here the basic blessing is if you keep the laws, you'll get to stay in the land of Cana. Look at verse 9. Keep his commands so that, so that as a result, as a consequence, you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your forefathers to give to them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. So if you obey, the blessing is you get to stay in the land of Cana. If you disobey, I'm going to implicitly vomit you out of the land. You're going to be expelled. You're not going to be there anymore. The third blessing and curse is in verses 13 to 17. 
where the blessing is rain and the curse is drought. The blessing is uh, productivity of your fields. The curse is the consequences of a drought, the lack of food and, and uh, produce. And so he says in verse 14, if you keep my commands, then as a result, I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rain, so that you'll gather in your grain, new wine and oil. But if you don't, verse 17, the Lord's anger will burn against you and He will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will not yield its produce. Blessing, curse. Now this one is, uh, I was saying earlier, it's deliciously ironic. Because who was the chief god of the Canaanites in the land that they were invading? Does anyone know what his name was? It was Baal. Does anyone know what Baal was the god of? Yep. Rain, agriculture, fertility. It's a great little irony here. It's like, okay, you're about to go into the land of the Canaanites. And if you want, land, if you want rain in the land of the Canaanites, then you need to worship the true god. But if you decide to worship Baal, the god of rain, you will have drought. So remember who is the true god. Don't worship other gods. In fact, he says in verse 16, right in that section, be careful not to be enticed to turn away and worship other gods. <clears throat> Baal, <coughs> you know, cough, cough, point, point. Wink, wink. It, that's the one I don't want you to follow. Because he's not really the rain god or the fertility god. God sends everything that we need. And then the fourth blessing and curse, just to wrap this, this idea up in verses 22 to 25. The fourth blessing and curse is that God will help Israel overcome her enemies in the land of Canaan. Verse 23, if, if you keep my commands, if you love me, what will happen? Verse 23, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. If you obey me, I will give you military success over the Canaanites. If you disobey me, I will give them military success over you, is the implied curse. So, there it is. It's pretty simple, this Old Testament covenant. God says, I'm your covenant God. Here's my commands. Keep my commands. Blessing. Disobey my commands. Curse. You know, keep my commands. Life. Don't keep them. Death. Keep them. You get to stay in the land. Break them, I'm going to kick you out of the land. Keep them, rain. Don't keep them, drought. Keep them, victory. Don't keep them, defeat. And so, this is the arrangement that God set up with Israel. And it's really kind of brought together. So chapter 11 is, I think in some ways, even though it's a big chapter and there's a lot of stuff in it, it's a really simple chapter and it really summarizes the main message of the book of Deuteronomy and what Moses was trying to communicate. Uh, let me tell you what I think here. I think that most people get this. I think the idea of a blessings and curses for obedience or disobedience, respectively, I think people understand this concept almost intuitively. I think this makes sense to human beings. And at one level, we totally get this. And at another level, we don't really get it at all. In what sense do we get this? I think people get it. You know, you tell someone, look, you do the right thing, it's going to turn out good for you. You do the wrong thing, it's going to turn out bad for you. I think most people intuitively understand that. You know, people who have been raised, certainly in a Judeo-Christian kind of background, kind of have that idea that there's, there's commandments that God has given. And if you keep those commands, there's blessings. If you don't keep those commands, it's not so good. But even people who wouldn't subscribe to being uh, Jewish or being Christian or anything like that, pe people have a moral sense. I mean, that's one of the interesting things about human beings is that people are moral creatures. 
And people have morality. Even people who don't believe in the Bible have morality. It's, I think one of the, the strongest philosophical arguments for the existence of God is that all human beings are moral beings. We all have a sense there is right, there is wrong. Right is good and produces good. Wrong and, and bad choices, however defined, is bad and leads to bad things and should be punished. We, we have this innate sense as human beings. Why do all human beings think this way? Why is that in us? That's an interesting question to ask. I think it's one of the strongest arguments for the fact that maybe there's a moral lawgiver who has put a conscience and a moral, a sense of morality in us, even though that sense of morality is bent and twisted and warped because of our fall into sin. Yet it's still there. It wasn't erased. It's just kind of messed up. But it's still there. We have this sense. And so even people who don't hold to any faith, who wouldn't subscribe themselves as anything, still have a sense that's a right and a wrong that should lead to good consequences or bad consequences. I mean, you know, what's karma, right? It's this idea that if I do good things, however defined, that the boomerang will eventually come around and I'll have good things happen to me. And if I do bad things, however defined, the boomerang will come around and smack me in the head and bad things will happen. And, you know, if you believe in reincarnation, uh, which I don't, then the idea is, well, then that the good thing will happen in the next life or the bad thing will happen in the next life. So, so I think people understand this idea of blessings and curses for obedience disobedience. At some level, in some at least general rudimentary way, it makes sense to us. Uh, this week I, was, um, I took a little time off and went to uh, one of the schools in our school district where they're looking for a new principal. And they invited parents to come and meet, you know, the principal candidate. And uh, so uh, I went. So it was like me and like 35, you know, soccer moms. It was great. And we were, um, <laughs> who knew a lot more about education than I did. So I actually learned a ton just listening to them ask questions. I, I didn't really say much, you know, a few things, but I just listened. And, and what was really fascinating to me was that as these, these moms were asking questions of these candidates for this principal job, they were really concerned about morality. You know? This was an issue that kept coming up. How are we going to help our kids not fall into drugs, alcohol, promiscuity, and general craziness? How, how are you as a principal going to help guide our kids? You know, it was a real concern. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. I, I thought I was the only one who was concerned about these things. And here's all these moms. And, you know, I don't know what their religious background was, whatever. But they were like, yeah, this is a concern to us. Because they were saying, it's not just that, that we want to see our kids educated well so they can get into a good school and get a good score on the SAT. We want our kids to have a good life. And, and so if, if, we, if we could train them to do live this way, we believe that's going to bring a better life than if they slip into these things and it'll bring a worse life. And so, so it's just interesting to hear that. So like I said, I think people get this. This makes sense in, in some way, it, it's, in some at least dim way, people understand this. And, and so it's, it's common sense in some ways. You, you might say moral common sense that this is how things should be. So people get this. And yet at a deeper level, I don't think we really get it. And what I mean is this. We don't get it in the sense that we actually think we have a shot at the blessings. That's what we don't get. Is that we see the framework of blessings and curses, obedience, disobedience, good for good, bad for bad, and, and we actually think, you know, I can do this. I can make this work. And that's where it falls apart. 
You see, there's nothing wrong with the blessings and curses framework. The problem is, right here, it's the guy trying to do the job. I, I just, I blow it. I can't succeed at this. Think about the history of Israel. Let's, all right, we're here in Deuteronomy, the beginning of Israel's history. Let's now kind of go forward down the timeline after Deuteronomy. What did Israel experience long term? Did they, in the end, ultimately experience blessing, or in the end, did they ultimately experience a curse? And I, and I, don't, and I mean in the end, because you know there were ups and downs along the way. Sometimes they were doing better, sometimes they were doing worse. But any of you who guys uh, or ladies who work in, I don't know, finance or whatever, you, you watch trend lines and stocks and things like that, you, you know you can't focus on this part. You've got to focus on the overall trend line, where it's going, and, and you've got to kind of map out long-term. So long-term, was Israel being growing in obedience and, and did they get blessing? Or were they growing in dis, or, you know, devol- devolving into disobedience and curse? What was it? It was a curse, you know? It's like there at, at Mount Sinai when they're getting the Ten Commandments. Moses has gone a little long and they start worshiping a golden calf. And it just kind of went downhill from there. And they'd have their moments. There'd be their revivals. God would bless here and there. But, but just the idolatry and the disobedience until finally God said, enough is enough. I'm going to pull the ripcord on the curse bag and it's all going to fall. And, uh, and He did uh, in 722 B.C. God brought the Assyrian nation in and they demolished the northern ten tribes of Israel. And in 586 B.C., God brought the Babylonians who demolished the Assyrians and then they went down and took out what was left of God's people in Judah. So God's curse ultimately came. There was death. There was defeat. There was expulsion from the land. There was a curse. But I'm not picking on the Israelites Because frankly, if God made the same covenant with the south shore of Boston today as He did with Israel, (laughs) we would fail just as badly. You know, there would be a failure there. We we wouldn't keep it any better. This is not an ethnic thing or a Jewish-Gentile thing. It's a human thing. We're sinful people. That's what Paul argues in Romans chapter 3, that Jew and Gentile are alike under sin. We're all under the curse of God because no one keeps the law, the way God commands. Let me show you a very interesting text that ties into this. It's in the New Testament, book of Galatians, chapter 3, page 1152 in the Pew Bible. Galatians, chapter 3. Wow, thank you, Jesus, for that breeze. Talk about blessings. Thank you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul breaks it down real real simple for us. He says in Galatians 3.10, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. If you observe the law, if that's your path, if that's your your scheme for the blessing, you're under a curse. It doesn't work. For, why? What's the problem? For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. The reason I'm under a curse is because, and everyone is, is because to, to get the blessing you have to do everything written in the law. 
And we can't. You know, James chapter 2, verse 10 makes it really clear. If, you're, if you break one law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law. Because God's standard is holiness. God is standard is perfection. He's a holy God. A holy God dwelt among Israel. That's what He expected from them. So He gave them His law. And they broke it. So we're under a curse. If we try to go that way, we'll fail because of who we are. Because remember the law, people? The law isn't just try to be a nice person and don't be a hater and don't be an axe murderer and you know avoid addiction. I mean, that, that wasn't the law. The law, where does it start? You guys remember? We just studied this in Deuteronomy. It starts in the heart. The law starts with love God with all your heart. You know, it's, it's not enough to have students in schools who stay out of trouble. God wants students who love Jesus with all their heart. God wants parents who love Jesus with all their heart. And so that, so even from the get-go, I find I'm cursed. Because there is not within my natural human unredeemed soul a love, a true love for God. Now, that, that, that's the hard part, is loving God. You know, if God told me, hey, look, to get my blessing, you need to keep these three holy days a year and you've got to avoid these four behaviors. You know what? I'm type A enough and I'm, I'm a perfectionist enough and I'm driven enough. I think I could actually do it. If that's what it was to get God's blessing, I could do that. The problem is God starts with Jeremy. Love me with all your heart. And I'm like, oh, sorry, God. Because you know what? Let's just be totally honest and candid. This is painful to say, painful to hear, but let's be brutally honest. We love our sin more than we love Jesus. Bottom line. And I can't change that. If you ask me to change a behavior, I can change a behavior through some self-discipline. But I can't change my heart. I can't rewrite my spiritual DNA. I just am who I am. This is my nature. This is my my fundamental life orientation is not towards uh, God, but towards self. You know, what's the vitamin I take? What's the diet supplement that I stir into my milk that will make my heart love God? I can't get there. You know, it just doesn't work. I, I don't love God the way I should. So I'm under the curse. And, and that's the problem. You know. And so what I need, what we need, is frankly, we just need a miracle. I don't need a self-help program. I don't need eight steps to self-improvement. They're probably good things, but they won't change my heart. I don't need better. I don't need more more education. Educating someone more won't change their heart, uh, even though education is totally totally important. And I'm concerned about the education of my kids. But it's, I understand the heart is the problem. That's where sin comes from. And and uh, you know, government spending can't change the heart. Church programs can't change the heart. It's like I need a miracle, not a method. Or, or a technique or a couple of steps. I need God to do something just as wonderfully miraculous as He did when He opened the Red Sea for Israel. I, I need a, an opening of the Red Sea kind of moment for me so that I can be the kind of person who would love God and be able to keep His commands. Otherwise, the blessing is so far out of my reach and the curse is inevitable. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning some really amazing news. 
good news, best news you're going to hear ever. God has provided the miracle. And the miracle has a name. And the name of the miracle is Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's miracle for stuck, cursed sinners like me who cannot fix themselves and re-engineer themselves to receive a blessing. Because Jesus Christ has made a new deal, a new covenant, a new way of getting to God. The old covenant, I was stuck. So He made something new. He brings a new covenant, a new way to the Lord. Look what He does. Look at verses 13 and 14 of Galatians 3, just continuing on this passage. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. It's through Christ that we have this this blessing and this freedom from the curse. Notice three things just in those two verses. Three quick things. Number one, Jesus carried my curse. When He went to the cross, when He hung on a tree, the curse of God was visited upon Him that I deserve. You, you know, I love to think about the cross. I love to turn the cross around in my mind. I, it, I think of the cross like the hope diamond. It has so many beautiful facets and colors. And I love to just look at it from different theological facets and think about the cross in different ways. And you know, here's a way of thinking about the cross maybe you've never thought of. The cross is what happened when, when all of the old covenant curses were poured out upon Jesus, who stood as true Israel on the cross, true Adam, true David, but taking my place and bearing all those covenant curses from the old covenant on Himself as God's anger was poured out on Him instead of me. And so in this new covenant, I'm free from the curse because Jesus has borne the curse. Number two, Jesus has not only carried the curse, number two, He's bought the blessing. He bought the blessing. Verse 14, He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. So God promised Abraham blessings for the whole world. He then brought those blessings forward to Israel and said, if you keep My law, the blessings will come. But Israel didn't. But God didn't drop the blessings. He then brought those blessings now through Jesus Christ. So through Jesus, all of the Old Covenant blessings in a sense, and even greater, are ours in Christ. The blessings that God has to give through Abraham are ours. And how did Jesus get the blessings? Very simple. He kept the covenant. Isn't that cool? He's the one guy who's actually kept the covenant. He loved God with all his heart. He loved his neighbor as himself. He always did the will of God. And so he earned the blessings. Or, or think about it this way, for those of you who are kind of theology wonks and, and like to get into theology. Uh, Think about this. In, in, in one sense, you could say the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are very similar in that they both have a model, which is obey, be blessed, disobey, be cursed. The difference is that in the New Covenant, Jesus has accomplished both the obedience that we need and borne the curse that we have. So, so that it's the same kind of covenant and yet totally different because Christ has walked that path for us. So the curse has been carried. The blessing has been bought. And then number three, here's the last one, uh, just to continue this alliteration. The Spirit has been sent. 
at the end of verse 14, all this has happened so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. So when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into us and He does for me the thing that I can never do for myself. The Holy Spirit finally gives me a new heart. I've been born again. I'm a new person. You know, when you're born again, and there's only one type of real Christianity, according to Jesus, it's called born-again Christianity. Because being a Christian is having a new heart given to you so that, that you love God. And, and when you're born again, what happens is suddenly there's a little pilot light of love for God that goes boop in your soul. You don't know how it got there. You didn't make it there. There wasn't a method. It's just God gives you faith. And suddenly you love Him. Uh, there's a brother who once was explaining his conversion to me, how he became a Christian. He says, you know, I was in church singing the songs, hearing the sermons. And he goes, one day I suddenly there was just a little light of love for Christ that was in my heart. He goes, I don't know how I got there, but it was there. And I suddenly loved Jesus. Do you want to know if you're really a Christian? Ask yourself, do I love Jesus Christ? I didn't say, do I believe there's a God? I said, do I love Jesus Christ? And if you don't love Him, or you haven't felt that, you haven't experienced that, then seek it. Ask, Lord, put the light in my soul. I want to love Christ. I want to treasure Jesus and all my confidence to be in Him. That's the evidence of real Christianity is love for the Lord Jesus in our souls that God puts there by the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, it's a miracle. <laughs> it's a miracle. There's no process. You can't do an altar call and say, all right, if you come down to the altar, the light will turn on. It doesn't work that way. It's just God has to do it by His power and His time. It's amazing. So, my friends, let us abandon all of our lame efforts at observing the law, however defined. And let us put all of our hope, put all of our investment of our trust into one fund, Jesus Christ, the only Savior, the only one who can carry your curse and the only one who, can, who bought the blessing, the only one who can change your heart and do it. And so let not the Jew put his trust in study and obedience of Torah because it will only bring a curse. Instead, let the Jew look to Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, and receive the forgiveness that Jesus brings. Let not the Muslim think that, that he can somehow make it into paradise by submitting to Allah through the five pillars of Islam or Sharia law. Let, let the Muslim not think that, that there's a hopeful path there because it will only bring a curse. Instead, let the Muslim know that God has sent more than a prophet. He sent Jesus the Savior of all men, God incarnate. And let the Muslim meet a God not of just harsh judgment, but a God of love and grace. Let the Buddhist dropkick karma. <laughs> you don't want karma. You don't want to get what you deserve. You don't. The last thing you want is karma. <laughs> you, know? you know, you want something better than karma. Buddhist, trade your karma in for grace. Grace is when you get what you don't deserve by God's kindness and grace and meet the Savior and, and drop this idea that you're God. You're not God. Jesus is God and He's real 
and He can save you. Christian, or at least who calls himself a Christian, don't think that, that being baptized as a child or attending catechism or Sunday school or confirmation or doing certain churchly activities or being in a church or listening to this sermon or saying amen to this sermon makes you a Christian. If you're not in the New Covenant, you're not a Christian. So join the New Covenant through faith in Jesus, which is what it's all about. Let not the liberal be smug about his social activism. And let not the conservative be smug about his sacrificial patriotism. But let them both realize that there is only favor with God through Jesus Christ, the greatest activist and sacrificial lamb there ever was. Let not the drunk and the addict and the adulterer and the degenerate and the dirtbag and the low-life despair Because there is a Savior who died for sinners and who has righteousness enough for you. There is more grace in Jesus than sin in you. And you're not lost. You're not hopeless. Jesus is the friend of sinners. And His covenant has room for you. Let the backslidden Christian come on back. You think, backslidden Christian, I'm too far this time. Whoops, I did it again. I can't come back again. Backslidden Christian, Jesus bore your curse. There's no curse left for you. Jesus took it all. There's not a drop left for you to take. And His mercy is yours. And just as Peter denied Jesus three times and Jesus came to him and said, Peter, do you love me? So Jesus is coming to you right now and saying, do you love me? And the backslidden Christian looks into his heart and says, I can't believe it, but I still love Jesus. Despite all I've done to extinguish the flame of God in me through all of my backsliding, I still love Jesus. I must really be a Christian because I can't shake the love of Christ and let God fan that flame back into your life. Come on back. And busy Christian, serving Christian, engaged Christian, out there working, doing, living for God as hard as you can, Keep going, but don't make the mistake of thinking that all of your doing, 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 serving, giving, sacrificing, committees, ministries is what's making God happier and happier and happier with you. Don't think that. If God were to take you out tomorrow and lay you up for the rest of your life so that for the rest of your Christian life you could not serve Him outwardly in any way, you would not be any more loved by God or any less loved by God because Christ has done the work. Don't become a Martha. Remember Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and just worshipped and listened and praised Him. And let all of us wake up and realize that at this very moment we are standing pressed up against eternity. Right now, eternity is touching the tip of your nose. Right now, eternity is touching your feet. It's right in front of you. And in any moment we could pass through that membrane into eternity. In fact, we will. For some of us, it, it might be sooner. It could be an hour from now. It could be 50 years from now. But in the light of eternity, what's the difference really in terms of scale? We're all we're like right at the edge of eternity. We're going to pass through that membrane into, into God's eternity. And when we do, there is only two ways to go. There is an everlasting blessing 
that is in God's presence, that is so high and far above us, it's completely out of our own reach. But there is also an everlasting curse that lies open before us that we'll fall into without help. And then there's Jesus Christ who has the authority and the saving power to bear us to the everlasting blessing of God. So my friends, put all of your hope, all of your confidence, and all of your love into Jesus alone. Let's pray.